to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. When the Civil War began, clergy and their congregations in the North and South alike shared an unshakable conviction that their cause was just, supported by the plain and unmistakable meaning of the Christian Bible, and only those with malevolent hearts could possibly come to any other conclusion. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other, as Lincoln would state four years later. The only thing on which they disagreed was which of the two diametrically opposite conclusions they drew from the Bible was the correct one. And yet this conflict was not the worst part of what Mark Knoll, professor of history at University of Notre Dame, has called the Civil War as a theological crisis. We'll find out what else was behind it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not representing the university or speaking for it, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do, legalistically here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, if you're a listener to the show for any length of time, if you've gazed at our page on Facebook, Impediments of War, you know that as of last Thursday, Mark Gaffney, the man who makes everything work technically on the Facebook page and the web page and everywhere else, posted the news. Uh, We have fulfilled the ancient prediction that 2017 would be the year of 1,000 likes, and the Facebook page Impediments of War now has more than 1,000 likes. Thank you all for contributing to the effort, for liking the page, for telling your friends and family to like the page. Uh, As one listener commented on the the page, now that there's 1,000 likes, I can mention that more often than my Harvard degree, which, uh, as you notice, I was just able to mention right there, so that worked. Uh, 
But it does bring us to something of a, a crisis, not a theological crisis as the Civil War was, which we'll talk about later this evening, but a, a content crisis, no more haranguing you to like the page because we've got our thousand likes, uh, no more talking about youth soccer because my daughters are long since grown up past that phase. No more talking about old man recreational soccer, as I announced last week. I'm hanging up the cleats, not playing this season, finally recognizing I'm just getting the the, the, the snot kicked out of me every week and, and, and getting injured and just not a good thing to do at this time. Uh, can't talk about ECU Pirate football this season after they lost their first two games and gave up over 600 yards in each game. Coach fired the defensive coordinator this week. Uh, threw him under the bus. That'll hold his job for another week or two, maybe, but there's nothing to say there. Uh, my alma mater, Michigan, is doing well. Don't want to jinx them, so we're not going to talk about them. May actually have to talk about the Civil War this evening and in shows ahead. Uh, horrors. I do want to say a word about last week's show. It was, uh, first of all, I wanted to thank once again last week's guest for filling in on short notice. If you were listening, uh, you know, the book was about alcohol in the Civil War, which I thought was a, a promising topic. Uh, if, you, if you haven't listened to the show, you can go back and do that and come back here later. We'll still be here. Uh, and and I, the, the author had a very aggressive publicist who wrote to me about the new book that came out last week. Said, oh, you should have him on your show. Can you get him on this week? And I said politely no uh, by email. The show's booked months in advance. I, I could maybe have an opening in January. And the response was, okay, yeah, January, uh, I'll send you the book. So they sent the book, and I finally had to politely decline and say, I don't think I can come up with an hour of good questions about this. It's just a collection of anecdotes without sources. And then, as you know, uh, our scheduled guest had to reschedule, and I had to go back hat in hand and say, on the other hand, I'm sure I can come up with something could could your guest fill in six hours from now? And that's exactly what happened. Uh, he agreed. And as you heard, I think he was nervous that I was going to go all academic on him and uh, make, make, make him sound bad. And of course, that's not the purpose of these interviews. And when he realized that was not going to happen, things got better. And I realized there was actually more thought behind the book than the, the publicity that his, his publisher has come up with. Uh, has produced, which which means he's, he was a victim of that. Uh, I still can't say you need to rush out and, and get that particular book, which I think will be good news to many listeners who complain each week about their book-buying budgets being damaged by the uh, episodes of this show, uh, making it impossible to live without reading the book we talk about. So the last thing, maybe that's not the case, but I promise to make up for that tonight. Uh, and in the weeks ahead with with books you will be unable to resist. You can find out about them, as always, by going to the Facebook page or the website, both with the name Impediments of War, all one word. And uh, Mark Gaffney, as I mentioned, keeps things going. You can buy the books through the Amazon link on the impedimentsofwar.org webpage. You can also find the Civil War Talk Radio book donation fund button, uh, which I stress is not a charity. It's not tax deductible. After last week's show, I planned to use the uh, donations received for a uh, 
bottle of um, uh, Knob Creek in honor of Abraham Lincoln's uh, childhood farm in Kentucky. Uh, I can do whatever I want with that money if you send it, so it's much appreciated. Usually, usually use it for the books uh, or, or professional dues or something, but not tax deductible. You'll find out at the website who's going to be on next. We've got lots of uh, good shows coming up next week. Nancy Gudmestad, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who's the director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg, will be with us. On the 27th of September, Jeff Richmond returns to the show to talk about the gallant Sims, a Civil War hero rediscovered. Uh, Jeff always finds interesting stories like that. Um, first show in October, Kenneth Heinemann writes about the Ewing family of Ohio, Civil War dynasty. On the 11th of October, Kate Lineberry has a new book called Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from Slavery to Union Hero. And uh, a couple more. October 18th, Joan Waugh returns to the show. Uh, she and Gary Gallagher have co-authored a textbook called The American War, much shorter than many other textbooks. I'm using it in class now, and I'm eager to have her on to see if she can give me some tips for effective use of that book and talk about the challenge of writing about the entire war between two covers and how that's done. And can't resist. One more. Uh, October 25, D.H. Dilbeck, a new voice on the scene, has a book called A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. And that ties in certainly to issues uh, addressed uh, occasionally by scholars in the past, but perhaps not as much as they ought to have been, uh, a topic we'll raise in just a second. Last two announcements, it's never too early to mark your calendars for this hallowed ground in 2018. That'll be May 19th through 27. Check with Stephen Ambrose Tours. Uh, and if you want to join me on a fascinating a set of travels through Civil War battlefields. That's where we'll be. And finally, this is probably premature to say anything about it, but I uh, got an interesting communication from uh, the director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, uh, old friend Peter Carmichael, about the possibility of recording some shows at the Institute in the future uh, over the summer to be played in the following fall. So maybe the year 2018 will be the uh, Civil War Institute year for Civil War Talk Radio. It's it's a never been done before, new idea. Probably shouldn't say anything until I've had more conversation, but I'm excited about the prospect, and I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. I'm also excited about tonight's book, uh, a absolutely fascinating and important book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. The author is Mark Knoll. He is the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, and uh, hopefully he joins us now. Professor Knoll, are you there? Yes, and I am. Thank you. And there he is. Well, welcome to the show. Good. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. You've got a, a, a great thing going with an awfully lively set of books and interviewees. And I'm delighted to be in the list. Well, well, you your book was recommended by a listener. All credit to Civil War Talk Radio listeners. Uh, many of the best selections that we do on the show are books or 
authors that are recommended by listeners in, in your book came to me from several different names. And of course, I was familiar with it and just one of those things where oh, I got to get to read that someday. And after it was suggested again, I said, okay, today's the day and uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. Let me ask you, though, first of all, uh, just a, a quick background question uh, about how you got to the uh, esteemed uh, academic posts that you have reached. Uh, uh, Tell us well, a little bit about uh, yourself. Yes, uh, I, I'm um, a graduate of Vanderbilt University back in the dawn of time. <laughs> I taught for almost uh, 30 years at Wheaton College outside of Chicago, and then for the last uh, 12 years, actually, at Notre Dame. I'm technically uh, retired from the Notre Dame History Department, but since I have several Ph.D. students who need to finish, I don't feel quite retired yet. So I've enjoyed uh, studying mostly uh, topics uh, involved religion plus, so religion in the founding of the United States, religion and intellectual life, religion and Canadian history, and uh, almost inevitably, if you have those kind of interests, you're going to end up doing something with the Civil War sooner or later. It, it does seem to be the case. Now, you point out in the book, uh, uh, Civil War is a theological crisis, which originated as a set of lectures uh, at, at the, the Penn State series, I believe, right. that that was uh, about 10 years ago, you point out that there was a renaissance going on in writing about religion in the Civil War, that the topic had been neglected for, for decades, but was starting to, to come into view. Is that still going on? Did yeah, that... uh, uh, very much so. I mean, and it's really uh, um, not just delightful because that happens to be something I'm interested in think it's important, but I think it's actually uh, substantially important because of how significant religious beliefs and practices were in the general American population at the time. You can, of course, overstate that matter, but I think uh, George Rabel's wonderful survey from maybe six or seven years ago now, and I'm forgetting the title, but it's just a great summation of his own research and then a lot of research of other people on the, the many dimensions of religious faith and practice in the Civil War. And the, the, the tide um, goes on. Um, um, I, if I start listing books, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, screw up names or titles, but just uh, <laughs> a, 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 an ongoing um, <clears throat> parade. It's not a flood, but an ongoing steady stream of books that are looking at different angles of how religion... Uh, factored into the Civil War, and then a few of them, how Civil War uh, affected religion, and those are those kind of books are particularly welcome, but um, the, the general picture, I think, today is very different from what it was. Say, when J- James McPherson published The Battle Cry of Freedom, which is, mm-hmm. in my view, a splendid book, but has almost nothing on religion, later, maybe ten years later, in an essay, he, he publicly didn't apologize exactly, but he said, as a topic that deserved much more attention, and then he has written in subsequently several uh, really well-researched essays uh, that act, as it were, a complement to the main narratives of Battle Cry of Freedom, focused on uh, religious values, religious beliefs, in some cases religious practices. Well, you point out, you said a moment ago how important religion was in the Civil War era, uh, and in your book, you say there was really no no era before or since when it was so important to the American people. How how do you measure something like that? Well, yes, that's that's an excellent question um, because um, if, if you can find in, in 
dozens or hundreds of letters home and diaries, reference to the Bible, reference to confidence in heaven or doubt about going to heaven. You, you, you haven't, you, you've seen something, but you, but you, you haven't seen it in uh, perspective. What I, I tried to do in the early stages of the Civil War as a theological crisis, actually to take some material from an earlier study that I'd done on uh, kind of how, uh, on, on how uh, religious thinking interacted with Republican thought and uh, the moral philosophy that was common in the country carried from the mid-18th century to the mid-19th century, but to make comparisons. And so here's some of the interesting comparisons. Um, in the United States in um, 1860, there was something like 50,000 organized churches. Um, and uh, and this, this is more orga- organized um, activities of that kind than in any other cultural activity. Uh, there were about 400 colleges in the country at the United States, almost all of them, with just a handful of exceptions, were organized by religious leaders, most of them Protestant because it was still a very Protestant era, but with now an increasing number of Catholic uh, schools as well. Uh, the budget, the, the money raised by American churches and American religious philanthropies in 1860 was probably pretty close to the uh, funds raised by the United States government. Today, the ratio is something like 20 or 30 uh, to, to 1. Uh, a kind of eccentric uh, statistic that I discovered in looking through the, the, the big census book that I picked up somewhere along the way. In 1860, more Methodist clergymen than postal workers. Another oh, one of the, sim- <laughs> another one of the sim- similar kind. Uh, more clergymen... And, and taken together than there were members in, in active military service before the uh, ramping up of enlistments and the draft uh, after uh, December of 1860. So it's really uh, a, just a remarkable collection of statistics. We're going to have to step in and we're going to take a short break and sure, come back. Sure. And I apologize for droning on about these matters. Not at all. It's welcome. Our guest tonight, Mark Knoll, author of The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Mark Knoll, author of The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. We talked a little bit in the first segment about how there was never a time in American history when organized religion was such an important part of public life. So many Americans were active in their churches. Churches were active uh, in raising funds and in carrying out activities. Uh, Mark, as you pointed out, more more clergy than postal workers, more clergy than enlisted soldiers before the war. Uh, really uh, very different from uh, uh, contemporary American society. You said briefly most uh, American churchgoers were Protestant. Right, right. That, that, that's a broad term. Right. What, what, can you talk about the, the, were there common beliefs that most sure. uh, Americans held? Sure. Um, yes, of the 50,000 or so um, places of organized worship in the United States in um, 1860, and there's a p- pretty good census record for that year, mm-hmm. about 2,500 were Roman Catholic, less than 100 were Jewish. Um, there, were, there were Mormon churches in, in the western United States, but uh, the overwhelming majority were Protestant, and of those, the overwhelming majority were what... In, in 19th century terms, although the, the term is tricky today, were evangelical. So Presbyterians, Baptist, Methodist, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, uh, many of the Episcopalians, and even some uh, Unitarians who had, who had a, a love for the Bible, who believed in the miracles told in the Bible. Uh, they just didn't believe that Jesus was fully the fully God like the, the other churches did. So the num- numbers, again, are, are, are hard to pin down exactly, but a really good estimate by Richard Carwadine in his uh, terrific mm-hmm. book on uh, religion uh, leading up to the Civil War, 1830 to 1860, he, he estimates that somewhere between a third and two-fifths of the American population had an active connection to an evangelical Protestant, or Protestant church of evangelical leanings. That, that number might not sound too large, but the comparative uh, matter is significant. There just wasn't any other system of values that had anywhere near this kind of general adherence in the country at that time. Of course, those, those evangelical Protestants could argue, fight with each other tooth and nail, but they were united in, in believing the Bible was the supreme word from God, united in believing that people should live a, a, a Christian life, United in, in thinking that it was their duty to to uh, promote Christian values in the public life and so on. Now, and another point that you make about them about this belief system is that the Bible not only is is the correct guide to to public as well as private life, but that the Bible is also accessible to anyone. 
Right, and, and this is a particularly important feature of American public life, where s- since the late eight, 18th century, um, religion was democratized. A very important book by Nathan Hatch with that title, The Democratization of American Christianity, now a generation ago, um, opened the door to seeing how, how much religion in general, even sometimes Catholic and Jewish expressions, but particularly Protestant expressions of religion, were democratized, and it was a people's faith. Part of uh, what was meant by a people's faith is great confidence that lay people were able to read the scriptures by themselves, for themselves, with minimal necessity for guidance from intellectual or social superiors. So the democratization and, and very much the, the uh, carryover Republican uh, political ideology from the revolutionary era gave great uh, skepticism in the public at large about being told to what something like the Bible said. There's actually a parallel to great skepticism being told what the Constitution meant, but that that's actually points to the confidence in written, written sources and then the confidence of ordinary men, occasionally women, at understanding what these written sources, these basic fundamental writ, written sources were about. So it, it's not just that uh, people were Protestant, it's not just they were Protestant of an evangelical type, but they were evangelical type Protestants in an American environment in which the democratization of mind carried over into religion. The, uh, th- this is an evolution of American religious practice. Uh, you don't write extensively in this work about the, the Second Great Awakening, but presumably that movement describes... The, the rise of these religions. Is that right, accurate? Exactly. Well, what, what came out of the revolutionary period is, is a, um, a pretty strong um, background Christianity. Um, the, the patriots who promoted independence from Great Britain made excellent use of the Bible to support their cause. Uh, but it, but it uh, was not um, the sort of uh, pietistic and personal use of the Bible in general that would expand rapidly from the 1790s onwards. Uh, Tom Paine is a crucial, is as almost a crucial figure in the 1790s as he was in the 1770s. He published his Age of Reason in 1794, 95 in two parts with an all-out attack upon the foolishness of the Christian scriptures. This attack generated something like 80 different responses by Americans, all of which, well, all but one or two of which, in, in one way or another, wanted to defend the scriptures as from God. At the same time, you had the expansion of the Methodist movement that promoted a much more personal, we say more pietistic, conversion-oriented understanding of the Christian faith. There had been, at the time of the American Revolution, maybe a thousand Methodists in the United States uh, under the leadership of Francis Asbury, one of the truly influential figures in American life, Methodists simply exploded, not just in frontier areas, but cities and, and in the intermediate zones, so that by the 1820s or 30s, the Methodists were the largest religious group in the United States, and by the 1860s, far and away the largest group. They were the driving religious force, whereas Presbyterians and Congregationalists, sometimes Episcopalians, still kept some of the intellectual leadership in um, public life. So at the time of the Civil War, even though maybe 40% of American Protestants are Methodists, it's Presbyterians and Congregationalists and occasionally Baptists 
who become religious spokesmen for the for the North and then religious spokesmen for the South. Now, that's interesting. It's the first time either of us has mentioned North or South. Uh, th- these are national trends in the beginning of the first half of the 19th century. Right, exactly. And as I intimated in the introduction, this belief that anyone uh, can read the Bible, its meaning is plain, uh, the meaning of the scriptures is plain to any any person without instruction from uh, trained uh, preachers or, or priests or anyone anyone else. Uh, yet, this is the era when you we read about uh, radically different interpretations of the Bible emerging, particularly in regard to the the issue of the day, which is, of course, slavery. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. Exactly. What, what, so, so what, yeah, the the, um, the the commonality is that on many matters is actually what makes the disagreement on slavery and eventually race such a significant um, disagreement. And and uh, your mentioning of North and South is is really a very important thing to say because. Well, white Southerners tended to agree both on the religious meaning of the Bible and what the Bible had to say about slavery. Mm-hmm. White Northerners, who agreed on what the Bible had to say about religion, differed amongst themselves quite dramatically over slavery and, and, and eventually even over, over the, the, the reasons for uh, having a civil war and defending the Union by force of arms. So one of the things that was uh, that surprised me, and I was supposed to be a veteran historian who knew these things, that surprised me in, in researching the book, was how strong in the North were uh, religion-based, usually Bible-based defenses, not always of the slave system per se, but for the general le- legitimacy of, of slavery. Um, there, there were uh, the fast day proclaimed by President Buchanan I think in the first week of of January 1861, brought forth a tremendous volume of sermons. Many of them were published, and in the published uh, in, the, in the published volumes, it's just as often that northern ministers are are saying something about the legitimacy of slavery as northern ministers are attacking the legitimacy of slavery. For listeners, listeners are are surely asking. How can one read the Bible and find it to be in support of slavery? Can you give us the sort of thumbnail well, sketch? That, I mean, that's, that, that, that too, with, with my attitude, I'm a churchgoer and a lifelong uh, supposed reader of the Bible, but, but I, it just did not, it, just, it had not borne in upon me as strongly as it should have what the actual evidence from the time, but then what mm-hmm. the evidence from the time reflecting back in the scriptures themselves indicates. So, how, how, do you, how do you find a Bible defense of slavery? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the father of the faith is Abraham. Abraham had slaves. Moses, the great lawgiver that God commanded to provide the commandments and other uh, uh, divine legislation for Israel, in the book of Leviticus, provided extensive, fairly extensive, uh, regulations for how Israelites could enslave the people they captured in battle, and the children of those people they captured in, in battle. Then you think, well, that's, that's the Hebrew Scriptures. That's old and, and, uh, and religion that just doesn't apply. The New Testament is clearly the book of, of uh, God's love and, and affirmation of everyone. 
in the New Testament. Um, Jesus never condemned slavery. The Apostle Paul, in several of the epistles, closes with instructions about daily life, and several of them include the instructions to slaves, obey your masters in the Lord as serving God, not men-pleasers. The book of Philemon uh, shows the Apostle Paul sending back a slave to his master and, and saying, well, the master should treat the slave now as a brother in Christ, but he does not attack the slave system. So it, it really, once, and this, 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 this kind of Bible argument about slavery dates back to the 18th century, but it really ramped up from the 1830s onwards, uh, uh, actually, actually in the 1820 in the Missouri Compromise onwards. But it, it, in the context of the day, everyone reading the Bible for themselves, believing that its, it's, it's meaning was fairly transparent on the surface, it was actually easier to defend slavery by the scriptures than to attack it. That was one of the most fascinating things in this book, uh, how, how you show that the, the anti-slave attack, uh, the biblical attack on slavery, is not nearly as literal. It's based on, on the spirit of the New Testament, right. on the spirit of the words of Jesus, but not on anything Express well, there, there were uh, there were a few voices, and some of these were from the African American communities. And there were a few Caucasian mm-hmm. voices who said, "Well, yes, we'll grant some of the things you want to say." The Bible, those defending the slavery, of the Bible, we've got some of the things you want to say about slavery in the ancient world. But when you look at the kind of slavery that exists in the United States, you just cannot justify that on the basis of slavery. John Fee, the founder of Berea College in Kentucky, had to leave Kentucky mm-hmm. during the war, but then came back, wrote an impassioned pamphlet in the 1850s that said, well, yes, you know, I, I read what you're saying about slavery, but all of the slaves that we find in the Bible were white, and that he, he had that in capital letters <laughs> with, with, with all sorts of... And, and, of course, that was true. The identification of Africans as the only ethnic group naturally fitted out and, and, and divinely ordained for slavery, it is very recent. I mean, it's 15th and 16th century, but, it, but it's very recent. So there were a few people, but, but so ingrained was the assumption, well, if we've got slavery, it's African or African-American slavery, so deeply ingrained was that assumption that arguments about what the Bible said concerning slavery were almost, in white communities, almost universally thought to apply in some way to the situation of the United States slave system. So, so the anti-slavery argument that people like, like John Fee make is not, it's maybe too subtle, maybe too yeah, learned. exactly. I mean, uh, and, and, and it required reasoning. It required uh, several steps. It required more than, than taking... Uh, passage of the Bible and applying them directly to the American setting. Um, this, this type of more subtle reasoning um, did go back in, into the uh, 18th century, some of the very first Quaker opponents of slavery, um, but, but it, just, it, it just didn't work very well in a, in a popular setting where uh, the Democratic and Republican ideology of the country had encouraged the confidence that literate people, literate men of ordinary intelligence could understand for themselves what the foundational docu- documents of religion, as well as politics, 
actually meant. And then you have those who, who challenge slavery who, in, in so many words, say, well, if, if your Bible doesn't condemn slavery, then I'm done with your Bible. Exactly, exactly. So Garrison... And and, uh, that's and, not uh, a winning argument. That's right. And, and every, every time somebody said that, the pro-slavery Bible argument got stronger. So you you can't uh, then one of the absolutely intriguing points that you make here is that this helps us understand the incredible animus towards abolitionists, right? Not just in the South, but in the North as well. Right. That's right. That that their argument to to ignore the letter and just follow the spirit of the New Testament. Is, is radically dangerous to all of society. Well, it seemed, it seemed to be to many people um, that, that if, if, you, if you made the argument that somehow the general spirit of the Bible is against slavery, you were really undercutting the authority of the Bible. And, and with, for people like William Lloyd Garrison, that, that was actually uh, true. Garrison mm-hmm. comes up, you'll not be surprised to hear, in, in quite a few of the northern ministerial uh, declarations about the legitimacy of slavery. And, and, and some of the, uh, my, my sympathies go out to some of these figures. Uh, Charles Hodge at Princeton Seminary, for example, really did not like slavery. He thought that, that there were many abuses. He joined others who, who said, well, the Bible seems to approve of slavery, but it certainly does not approve of a system where individuals are kept from learning how to read. It certainly it does not promote a system where uh, marriage vows are, where marriage is impossible, where children are ripped from their um, uh, parents. It certainly does not support a system where masters are able to prey on their female slaves. So he's very, very nervous about, about slavery itself. But one of the things that keeps him from becoming an all-out opponent of slavery, which he did actually later in 1863 and 64, one of the things that keeps him becoming an all-out opponent is his fear that if he goes to the spirit of the Bible, he'll end up like Garrison, undermining the authority of the Bible as a whole. So every time a radical abolitionist, and there were radical abolitionists who tried to remain close to the Bible, but every time a radical abolitionist said, well, if the Bible can be shown to support slavery, I don't have anything to do with the Bible, uh, people in the North who really didn't like slavery got very, very nervous, and then uh, spokesmen in the South simply cheered and said, look, this is what happened. You start by questioning the legitimacy of slavery, you end up with infidelity. And inf- infidelity was a much-used word to describe abolitionists. So they they are their own worst enemies, and, and it... I'm sure many listeners are, are, have had the same experience where you're reading about the the experiences of abolitionists and how how brutally they are treated right, in the North, right. how unpopular they are. Uh, maybe it's just that their Yankee uprightness is annoying to other people, but but it goes deeper than that, as you show here. There's there's so much more to the theological crisis of the Civil War. We'll come back and talk more about it in just a moment. Our guest tonight, Mark Knoll, author of The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Knoll, author of The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. We talked in the second segment about how uh, both sides could read the same Bible and find such different ideas about slavery in it, and how the the abolitionist reading of the Bible required a degree of interpretation that made many believers nervous uh, to the point that they would rather reject abolitionism than accept its biblical arguments, even if they weren't fond of slavery itself. It's, it's complex, but it helps understand how unpopular abolitionism was uh, for many uh, in the North as well as the South. Uh, Mark, you mentioned that uh, you know white southerners held one view uh, obviously there was also an african american uh, biblical tradition could you talk about that right right and and thankfully this too has been um, a tradition receiving a great deal of, of uh, academic study i think i've i'm up to now about 20 or 25 books on my shelf over the last mm. oh maybe 15 years that uh, dealing with um, African-American religion in general, but then more particularly with uh, African-American approaches to slavery, uh, uh, the use of the Bible in talking about slavery uh, in, in the 19th century. Vincent Wimbush uh, was a pioneer in that kind of work, and it, he's been followed by, by uh, many people. There's, there was a tradition that went back to the uh, 1780s and the 1790s, the first African-American or Caribbean, African-Caribbean publications in the Bible, Oluduau Equiano, for example, in which the scriptures were taken to be more the story of salvation with liberating effects than a guidebook for all of life. Uh, Equiano's uh, remarkable, unusual narrative it, it is, is a really interesting book for how deeply um, it shows Equiano immersed in evangelical religion, pretty conventional evangelical religion featuring conversion, uh, study of the Bible, the difference of the Bible, and how how much he applies the Exodus story, the liberation narrative of the scriptures 
as an attack on slavery. And that, that tradition is, is a strong one. Daniel Coker, a colleague of Richard Allen, founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the early uh, 19th century, uh, wrote a, a really a, a short but really sophisticated track uh, applying um, knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, knowledge of the New Testament, to the question of how could Israel enslave aliens. And his answer was, well, applying to the present was, if the church succeeds Israel, then, then there aren't any aliens, because everyone is either in the church or potentially in the church. Uh, uh, and, and then the, 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 the uh, tradition continues on. Uh, Daniel Alexander Payne would be a representative in the Civil War era itself, uh, leading bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who believe that the providence uh, as seen in the liberating work of the Exodus under Moses, liberation from sin under Jesus, the Apostle Paul's proclamation of, of uh, God's work saving sinners, pointed directly to the abolition of slavery. Now, thankfully, in, in modern contemporary scholarship, these voices are, be, are being recovered, unfortunately and tragically, dur- during the era in which they were active. They had almost no resonance in white communities. Frederick Douglass would be, would, would be another person. People know his famous speech in Rochester, what to me is the 4th of July, but in the North Star, and then the Frederick, what was the other newspaper called Frederick Douglass's something or other. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote himself, and, and he had others writing about how Scripture could, could be the support for African Americans, but not use the way that most white communities use the Bible. You mentioned the word providence in there, and I wanted to be sure to ask about that. This is uh, a, another key factor that, again, both North and South share, as uh, Lincoln right. again points out, you know, the right. prayers of both could not be answered, right. that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. People believe that you can read the Almighty's purposes right. in human events. Uh, how how do they deal then with the the fact that events don't work out as anybody yeah. thought they would? Well, exactly. I mean, well, great questions. And, and and Lincoln, pointed Lincoln, is really important because he was one of the very few people who had some kind of and it's complicated, of course, with Lincoln, but some kind of attachment to at least theism. Who mm-hmm. said I, I can't read providence? Has a famous meditation on divine will that maybe mm-hmm. comes from just after the Battle of Antietam. It's hard to date it, and then the second inaugural, in which he confesses his ignorance in understanding what God is doing in the world. Most other spokespeople in, in America were pretty sure they knew what the Lord was doing. In the early stages of, of the war, the Southern leaders were sure that uh, uh, God was with them in the way that God had been with the founders of the United States, trusting in his strength, going forth to independence that would secure freedom. As the war went on, for most leaders, um, Providence remained uh, a, a pretty secure foundation. When the tide of battle turned, uh, it became, however, uh, in their minds, they saw the events as showing that God was chastening his people, the South, mm-hmm. to, because of their sins. In other words, defeat was God's, in God's plan. It wasn't because the Sherman and Grant were smarter, that North had more uh, men under arms, but because the Lord wanted to reprove Southerners for their sinfulness and, and, and purify them as his people. 
after the, the war in the in the north. Uh, it was just, of course, the opposite feeling that, that the Lord had vindicated the, the ideals of the United States. You see that in the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address some. Uh, but then even, even more, and as the wars, as slavery, ending slavery becomes a more important part of Union ideology, that the Lord had wanted slavery to end. This, I mentioned Charles Hodge earlier at Princeton Seminary. He's a very serious thinker, but 1864 or 65, he comes out fully against slavery, not because he's changed his mind on his understanding of the Bible, but because he feels Providence has delivered the Southern armies into the hands of Sherman and Grant and their, their colleagues. Well, and providen- providentialism is a, a great thing. Uh, heads, I win, tails, you lose. Uh, Can be, you're if, right. You know, if, if whatever happens, I'm. we start with from the principle that I'm right and God is with me, and then whatever event happens, I just use that to confirm that belief. Well, there um, were people who, who became skeptical. Some Sometimes as a way out of uh, traditional Christian faith, sometimes not losing Christian faith, but really worrying about people who had that belief. Uh, Mary um, Chestnut, mm-hmm. in her diary, uh, complains about people who can see uh, the, the will of God uh, very, very clearly. And there are, there are a few others, but, but just, just not very many. Most people were exactly as, as you said. If, if we well, prosper, it's because God's prospering us. If we fail, it's because God is disciplining us. You, you use the phrase morally juvenile to characterize this, this kind of reasoning, and that leaped off the page at me because you're, you're very even-handed throughout in this, this topic, uh, but it, it struck me that that, that really is a, uh, it's, it's a harsh condemnation, but, but it seems justified. Well, it probably comes from either a, sort of a, a skepticism arising from studying history or from maybe uh, from the religious side, from a, 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 a view associated with uh, St. Augustine, that it just, it's just really, really hard to, to fathom how much people can fool themselves and religious people just as much as, as the non-religious. So, yes, that probably was a harsh judgment, but uh, in the light of the, the, the immense tragedy of the Civil War, and it, it's, it's all of the people who are killed and maimed and their families and, and the tide of physical destruction, but as, as we've experienced, as we're experiencing, even as we speak, the continued antagonisms of one sort or another that, that, that attend black-white relations in the in the United States uh, are, are are exemplified in in what did not take place in the moral reasoning of the 1860s. And you, you point out a fascinating consequence of this, which is that if the uh, if the two sides go in so confident in their reasoning, so certain God is with them, so certain they read the Bible in the only correct way possible, and there's no way to resolve that short of 700,000 deaths right, of young right. men that you, you point out that in the aftermath of the war, that's not the only factor, but it is a major factor in breaking that hold of religion on American public life where, where we have, as a nation, have never since relied primarily on scripture to settle public questions. Right, and, and religion obviously continued on strong, but, but it, it, mm-hmm. it certainly never had the place. And I, I, I'm, I, as, as you've summarized, I, I really do feel very strongly that it was the inability of the Protestant movement, which had 
I should have emphasized earlier, really accomplished a lot of good things in, in cultural life, education, other spheres of, of life in, in early U.S. history, but it, it could not resolve this, this great antagonistic divide. It's one of the reasons that Catholics in this country, and especially mm-hmm. foreign observers, said, well, we, we have the United States problems figured out. They've got all these religious people running around interpreting the Bible for themselves. What they need is an authoritative interpreter. And guess what? We've got one. The Pope will explain how the Bible should be used. Nations need a religious anchor, but they don't need a divided religious anchor. And and there is a little bit, there's a a bump. There's many other factors that come into play, but there's a bump Mm -hmm. in, in public Catholic commentary about the character of the United States precisely because of criticism of Protestantism in Catholic views helping to bring on the antagonism and the violence of the Civil War. That you, you write about that in the, the current number of the, the Journal of the Civil War Era, uh, the September 2017 issue. Listeners, if you want to find that uh, volume somewhere, about just that point, that, that American Catholics, uh, as well as Catholics overseas, which you write about more in the book, uh, really blame Protestantism itself for the war, this inherent uh, every man for himself reading right. is bound to lead to anarchy. Uh, they did, and, and uh, well, I'm, I'm of Protestant stock, and I want to defend quite a bit of, of the Protestant heritage in, in the world as, as a whole, and in the United States particularly, that, that there is a bite to that criticism, because um, uh, even as, as displayed in the division of the uh, the, the Baptist and the Methodist North and South in 1844-85, and then mm-hmm. the, the real bitterness, the intra-religious bitterness of the war itself, uh, that, that kind of criticism um, had some real validity. And I, it's, it's always, I'm sure it's impossible for anyone to read this without taking into account their own background. I was raised Catholic, and as I was reading the, your description of Catholic criticisms, uh, how Catholic writers could be strongly anti-slavery and yet equally strongly anti-abolitionist right, uh, right. in the same voice. It, 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 it's not an easy topic to study, uh, yeah. but a fascinating yeah, Well, one. yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, you, do, you do have uh, some interesting things happening in Catholic history. The Pope uh, Gregory XVI in the 1840s issued a very strong denunciation of the slave trade, mm-hmm. which... Uh, some people have read as denouncing, denouncing, denouncing slavery itself. Pius IX, the Pope, during the, the uh, Civil War era, told uh, uh, bishops in New Orleans that they couldn't, couldn't divide, you know, couldn't segregate their churches, that these are really conservative popes who think that anything liberal, anything promoting individual rights, parents' rights and education, uh, the separation of church and state are all nonsense. So you, you have, from American angle, a really strange combination of harsh criticism, not exactly of slavery itself, but of, of the slave trade and, and of abuses of slavery, and a real harsh criticism of, of many of the values that Americans in general had held, hold the, held dearest at the time, which is a, a, actually a, another reason why it's gratifying there's been such good scholarship on Catholics in the Civil War era coming out in the recent years as well. Well, we we have just scratched the surface and we are out of time. Uh, Listeners, you will be well repaid for reading The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll. It is uh, from the the 
Stephen and Janice Brough's lectures in the Civil War era series. Some of the most interesting books we've talked about on the show are from that series. The books are short, uh, but thoroughly stimulating, uh, highly recommended. And Mark, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, you're very welcome. It's been a great privilege. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.